Ever met someone and just thought, I don't know how he does it? Well, that's my guest today, Sandeep Varma. Hello, I'm Claire Tonti and welcome to Tonts, a podcast about feeling all of it. Now, the conversation you're about to hear today is with a wonderful old friend of mine whom I met through volunteering with kids from tricky backgrounds, taking them on camps over the school holidays. This is actually inadvertently how I met my husband man, James, too, but that's a story for another day. Sandeep Varma is a lovely old pal who I've always admired for his intelligence, tenacity, positivity, and kindness. Deep, as his mates call him, is someone who knows a lot about shifting the way we think, about mindsets, about thinking deeply, and about the value of aligning your work with your values. Sandeep is a dad to two little humans and is also the founder and CEO of Sari Collective, a media startup and community for South Asian Australians. He's passionate about amplifying South Asian voices, building community, anti-racism, helping young people and delivering social change. He has worked across so many sectors in his life. He's been a speech writer, as I said, a lawyer, a board chair, a leader and an advocate. Deep is also the board chair at 100 Story Building, which is another social enterprise for young creative writers. And in his spare time, just because he must have so much spare time, he is also the four-time Australian chili cooking champion for chili con carne. So settle in for a lovely wide-ranging conversation. I dare you not to be inspired by Sandeep Farmer. Hello, Sandeep. How are you? Claire, I'm great. I'm doing all right. We're in an extended now lockdown here in Melbourne. So surviving as best we can, I think, in the juggle of everything. Oh, my goodness. I know for listeners who who don't know you, do you want to explain a little bit about where you are and how your situation is currently? Because we're in Melbourne, obviously, we've just had tighter restrictions put on yesterday. You can hear our dog barking in the background. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing people might hear is my accent. And then also see my name and wonder how those two things connect um, (laughs) with being in Australia as well. So I guess might do to give you a short background on me. So, um, you know, my family's Indian, but I was born in the U.S. and I grew up in California and then went to uni on the East Coast at a university in Philadelphia. And then I got an exchange program that led me to come to Melbourne because our uni recommended that we all go somewhere abroad. Um, to understand the world a bit better, which is, I guess, very progressive for an American institution. Yeah, <laughs> um, And I came to Australia, and actually the very first day I arrived here, I met uh, Laura, who's now my wife, and we got together sh- not too long after that, and we just celebrated 20 years of that, our first kiss is yesterday, in fact. Oh, wow. And But then I went back, um, and I got a scholarship to come back and do my master's at Melbourne Union Media, And the interesting thing is that the thing I did my master's thesis on was, so I'm South Asian, um, which includes India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And the reason we use this term kind of South Asian now is because, you know, India and all the countries were colonized by the British. And before that, there was a sense of kind of identity that was across those spaces. And then there's been political divides. And most of those have been imposed by colonialism and what's happened over the last few years a few hundred years. And so the idea of being South Asian is something that actually came about in the US first um, and is now slowly starting to emerge in Australia. So it's not to kind of negate the idea of being Indian or Nepali or Pakistani, but it's an idea of something that instead of fighting with each other on differences that were actually just imposed by other people, that we kind of 
unify and go through those differences. So, for example, you know, India and Pakistan have been at it for a long time politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead of replicating the enmity that exists between those two, we adopt something that's a bit broader and it allows us a stronger also political base to which to go on. So um, when I first came here, I did my master's thesis in the media on in media studies on South Asian identity in the media across a couple of different countries. And in Australia, there was like hardly anything to be found at the time. Wow. And then um, fast forward quite a while. So I became a media advisor and a speechwriter in government in Australia. I worked in like crisis communications mostly. So the Black Saturday bushfires, tsunamis, floods, et cetera, a number of years ago. Um, and then I uh, took a turn to, I always had an interest in kind of law. So I started, was studying it part-time while working after a few years and thought it'd be great to practice. So I went to practice and I enjoyed it for a little while. And then I had kids. And also I think it got to the point where I realized that the impact I wanted to make with my life was a little bit different um, than what I was able to achieve with law. And also the law firm where I was at was a bit more of a kind of a consulting type space where you don't get to kind of see the outcomes through and own that. And so I thought, what can I do with my law degree? And my favorite subject at law school was children's rights law. So, you know, that's how we met, right? Volunteer with kids. I've always loved volunteering with kids and helping kids out. And so um, I thought, I'll go into that space. And I became a children's lawyer. So I represented young people in court, mostly in criminal matters, and uh, helped them out where I could. And as much as I enjoyed that work, um, I think I got to a point where I was given a project actually to run, and it was sort of starting from scratch, creating a project that helped young kids who were leaving out of home care, which is like foster care arrangements. Because um, the system in Australia is that when you turn 18, you kind of get dropped by the state, and no one looks after you. And so I was working on this project, helping kids in that space out with kind of long-term care and partnering with a bunch of law firms to do pro bono work. And I realized that I actually loved the idea of like a, getting a blank page and starting and building and creating something. Yeah. And so I did youth work, uh, youth legal work. I did human rights work. And the funny thing was that it all came sort of full circle. I did a project on human rights and multiculturalism in uh, Victoria for young people. So we looked at like rights and responsibilities and values that young people have. And we worked with like hundreds and hundreds of multicultural young people all across the state. And we taught them about project management. We helped fund particular projects that tried to move the needle on issues that they cared about, like racism and climate Mm. change and things. And so it's very much back to the roots of helping young people out. But also it was something that I saw a lot of South Asian young people because there's so many Indian and South Asian uh, migrants in Australia, like Victoria has the number one population of Indian migrants in the country and also Sri Lankan. And if you add up all the numbers, roughly, there's over a million South Asians in Australia. Wow, that's huge. That's much bigger than I thought. Yeah, it's always it's bigger than people thought. You know, some estimates have it up to 1.2 million, depending on the day, including include students. So it's a huge market for the unis. It's a huge worker base. And especially, you know, if you come to Melbourne, you see like South Asians kind of working in so many different spaces, you know. And the interesting thing was, in like, I heard from those young people the same thing I'd found in my research like 15 or 20 years before that, which was like, you know, where is the representation in the media? Mm. Uh, where is the representation of us in like politics, in, you know, in senior roles in the arts, for example, or even in business? Of, you know, there's a few here and there. How do we support each other? How do we find visibility? How do we find a space that we can be seen and kind of own and tell our own narratives? 
So this is a very long-winded explanation. <laughs> no, but I'm loving it. I haven't had to ask a single question. I'm just listening because it's such an incredible story, really, of where you started. Uh, long explanation for the an idea that I guess was relevant to me in terms of my own identity and the expression of that and seeing that kind of play out or lack of that play out in various spaces in Australia and wanting to do something about it, but not really doing anything about it for a long time. And then hearing about it and saying, well, actually maybe there's something we can do. So a mate of mine and I took the idea to um, a startup program for migrants and refugees, actually, which is called Catalyzer. And we just had the idea and they accept us on the basis of the idea. And we kind of put it through the paces and, did some research and, you know, found the numbers in terms of how many South Asians there are. But the other interesting fact was that um, there was a paper, that, a research paper that was published that suggested that based on the rates of migration, I mean, once you have like a, a big Indian type family somewhere, like all your relatives will be calling you up asking if they can, you can get them a visa. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's happened to me a few times. Like, hey, can you hook me up and get me into Australia? And so, I mean, it's no surprise that like once there's a like groundswell of people here and you have a kind of a family base and they're doing okay, like that other family members will follow or cousins or, you know, community will start to build. And that's mm. been happening here. That's why there's so many South Asians in Australia, you know, safe place, good education system, good healthcare, et cetera, good working prospects. And so it just, it just played out that way that the, the research paper says, well, this is actually documentable. And we can see that in the next like eight to 10 years, the number of South Asians in Australia will probably double. And this was pre-COVID, of course. Um, And so if you look at that, like that means South Asians will be a huge percentage of the Australian population. Mm. And like, and so that is, uh, you know, so the startup we started, Saudi Collective, which is now the organization I run um, every day. And that is, our mission is to amplify South Asian voices, but not just talk to like really well-established writers and journalists, but find the ones who are saying, who say to themselves, like, I don't, I'm not really a writer or I have some things to say, but I'm not really sure. Or they're maybe they're content creators across different platforms. They're kind of doing it on their own. Or they have great ideas. They're doing really smart things. Mm. Or maybe they have a career in something, but they want to have a they want to scratch that creative itch and don't quite know how because of both their own like inhibitions and also the cultural barriers that exist to, to going down that path in our communities. And so we are a space for that. Um, we have over a hundred writers who've worked with us across Australia and we're trying to be we're almost national so which is really exciting we're kind of a media platform so we we write stories um and create um content and comment on issues that are going on but also represent people's experience um here in Australia as migrants um and what they're doing what they're talking about what they're interested in um culture they're creating so for example recently had Vinnie Lunar who's uh, like an R&B artist out of Sydney oh cool who's produced this really cool track called Prema, which means love. And yeah, we just wanted to feature him as a like a really up and coming, very young, very new kind of South Asian artist who's getting notified. So I think he got on his track, got onto the the Spotify like bedroom kind of nighttime R&B jams kind of oh, list. Cool. And he was pretty excited. So yeah. you know, I mean, equally we talk about all kinds of issues within the community. So for example, we've written on like mental health is a massive issue, family violence, which is like not talked about at all in our communities um, because of the shame factor. We've talked about like geopolitical issues um, that have come up. Mm. We had a really cool, and it's not just, I think, so younger people who are coming to us and saying, hey, I'm not really sure if I've got an idea here, can I write something? And we kind of are just a really supportive place that helps put them 
you know, I guess through a process by which they get, you know, to work through it, to structure an idea or a piece or a video or an audio file, and then make something of that, help edit it, help produce it, you know, help put visuals to it, and then put it out in the world through our platform. And just the sense of pride that they get never having done that before or never having had that experience mm. um, that I've seen from the writers that we've had. And we've published people who've never been published before, many of them. Wow. Why yeah. Why are you the way that you are? Because you do so many things. Like you do this and you also do 100 Story Building wanted to ask you about. Yeah. You have such a strong social justice bent. I know you touched on it before, but why do you think you have such a drive to do so many things and make the world better? I think well, the idea of social justice comes from exactly the uniqueness of people who are kind of immigrants and how their kids have to sort out like juggling things. So like, for example, my parents came from India and the places that they grew up were very poor. So, you know, and going back there a number of times as a kid, um, having my grandparents stay with us numerous times when we were growing up in the States, you know, we were, we saw that like disparity that existed. We were fortunate enough that my parents had done their professionals and so they were able to do well for themselves. So we saw that. And my mom especially was very strong on, you know, trying to give back within her own community, you know, to look out for the people that were less fortunate because those people had helped her find her way through. Mm. There was a kind of a faith element to it growing up Hindu. Um, and being part of that community and understanding the like principles around karma and duty and the idea of, you know, looking after your being connected to that sense of community. So we grew up around a really strong Indian community. Mm. Could you explain what karma is to someone who sort of has heard it as a term that we just throw around? Yeah. From the perspective of the Hindu faith, what do you mean by karma? So I'm by no means any kind of expert. I'm just a lay person <laughs> who likes to read a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the common understanding of karma is that it's energy that is recycled. So like any action that you take has a consequence and the consequence of that is either good or bad. So there's almost a scale and you then own that karma. What is different about the actual roots of the concept is is bigger than that, which is really cool, but people don't usually get that. So they often think karma is like the scales that are balanced. If I do something good, then something good comes my way. If I do something bad, then it'll catch up with me down the track um, mm. and something bad will happen. So it's kind of like there's this destiny map and you know, you're know you scoring good things and bad things and they kind of weigh on you. Um, and they maybe they catch up with you and maybe they don't. The, the, the bigger Hindu concept, if you go back and read the mythology, which I kind of do sometimes, which I like, <laughs> is actually like it goes across lifetimes. So you not only are paying for your own, like you're not only trying to figure out your own karma, you're trying to figure out exactly the question you ask me, like, why are you this way? Mm. And it actually comes not just from like the existence you've currently had, but previous ones. It might even go back fairway, which is really interesting. And actually like, there's a number of cultures, including like Native Americans that have the concept of like, your elders or your ancestors, indigenous culture has this too, right? Um, mm. This is Australian culture. And yeah. your, your ancestors and like your elders and your family tree and the legacy that comes from that and trying to unpack and understand like where that comes about. So, I mean, some of the old like Hindu stories, you know, there's the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, they have like family lineages that go back generations and then at the start of like there's one king or there's one prince or there's one person and they have a cascade effect that goes on for like hundreds of years across multiple families 
and breaks things and wow. they're paying they're paying the price for the actions or you know reactions of those people and so if you look at it in like a much bigger picture you're an, like you're kind of an agent of karma that is way beyond your perception um and yeah. so karma then becomes not only a matter of faith but it becomes a matter of like how you choose to uncover it and part of that is a learning process and part of that is a surrendering process and the surrendering process is that you'll never know all of the reasons why your karma has come to you. I think that the, the common understanding of karma is that like, oh, I did something six months ago or three years ago or 10 yeah, years or when I was like, it's, it's just, hey, it's great. You know, <laughs> like I helped that old lady cross the road. So today I found $20 on the ground. It's, I think it's more, <laughs> it's deeper than that. I think it's bigger than that mm. because if it is something that is a balance that happens in the kind of the, the idea of the universe, then the energy is coming and going all the time and in like lots of different ways that you might not perceive. And it might be connected like in a broader sense to your family, which is why this idea of like Indian families and Hindu families living together, intergenerational like stuff happening together, um, the idea of community and commonality in our culture, which is like defined more circularly than individually, is um, is really strong. Wow. What do you mean by more circularly than individually? Can you unpack that a little bit more? Uh, so there's this, uh, yeah, there's a book that talks about like different ways that cultures stand. It said that like Western and Eastern cultures are different because in Western cultures, there's like time is a straight line. You know, things happen in progress and it's also much more kind of individualistic in that your actions stand wholly on yourself. It's kind of like that idea of karma being, it doesn't exist, right? Mm. So you just stand on what you've done and that's it. Mm. And you also are responsible for yourself. So I think sometimes when like indeed people around people that I know listen to families and like parents kick out their kids that's a weird concept for us like it still happens in our community not to say that it doesn't but it's it's, it's a weirder concept okay because you're a certain like you're a collective you're a community that is always you're connected to each other you're you're circular in your thinking you always think around in relationships in how things come full circles kind of the idea of karma and in like society being interconnected in a kind of broader circle of life kind of idea yeah um, and then you do i'm a solo person and that's it um in this world i have no obligations to anything and there's nothing that i have to fulfill by being me and look that's also secretly like the wish of a lot of brown kids who were raised with pretty strict <laughs> parents because like i just wish i could just walk away from all of that burden and that societal like obligation and that wanting to service my like family's expectations of me and all that and um and that's you know part of the work that we do actually is helping people um be supported to take a leap in into their own creativity um or their own you know opinions yeah. and voices but um yeah so there was, it was a it's a, a loose theory that guy wrote a book about it you know talked about asian cultures more broadly than indian culture being kind of circular communal yeah. really um relational in that way and then like western cultures being much more and one of the clearest examples is in even in language so it filters down so the word kal in hindi means tomorrow or yesterday so even at a linguistic level like there's a blurring of how time is perceived wow so that that time becomes this idea that's a little bit more like where have you come from and where are you going? And that's all connected yeah. as opposed to like time being like, okay, this, the past is closed and this is what I'm doing tomorrow to advance myself. And it doesn't matter what I do to the, the people around me. It's for me and my life and it just ends. And then that's mm. it. There's not that lasting 
thought process. It strikes me yeah. as a lot of pressure in some it ways. It is. It is. Yeah. And, you know, I think the problem with, I mean, I people might have heard about arranged marriages mm. in the past. My, my parents, for example, had an arranged marriages. Uh, many of my relatives, cousins, et cetera, have had arranged marriages for good and bad. And And the funny thing is that one of the people that, like administer those was my grandfather. Wow. So he did palmistry and astrology. He was a train engineer and then he retired and got into palmistry and astrology. So he used to arrange marriages. So people would come to him and that he'd look at their hand. He'd ask the time and date of birth. There's this entire mathematical like world of you can dive into about how this all works. But in, in some like there's the lines of your hand which tell you certain things. And there's also the position of the stars on the date and time you were born. And you're supposed to look at the handprint and ink it and put it on a piece of paper. There's all these lines. And then you map the stars on and little boxes on the day that you were born. And then there's angles where lines connect and intersect. And the angles tell you things, like your preferences for behaviors and supposedly like whether you'll be successful, how many kids you're going to have, whether you're going to be married, um, your like personal tendencies and things. And the funny thing is that he wrote a whole book on my life. Uh, it's called a Janam Patri in Hindi. But um, he, he wrote a whole book on your he wrote life. A book. He, I mean, he writes, that's what he does. He writes these books. Yeah. He did actually while he was alive. Um, he's passed now, but he writes these books on this is what will happen to you. And so also the same thing with arranged marriages, like you're a match because your stars align and good things will come. And so the concept of like underlying that is right. Fate or destiny is really strong, right? It's like, okay, this is what, this is who you are and this is what's going to happen to you. And your, or your karma is catching up in this way, or you're, you have good luck or bad luck or whatever. And, um, and that's terrible. Like as a concept, <laughs> like it's terrible because what does it do to you? It just makes you resign to whatever's happening in your life. Someone's told you you're, you're going to work, turn out unsuccessful or not as successful as someone else or have a failed marriage, then you will. You'll make that happen because it seems been planted in your mind. Yeah. And like, and for me that, you know, it was, it was great when you hear good things. You're like, oh yeah, good things. It's like reading your horoscope in the newspaper and you're like, oh yeah, cool. It says something good's going to happen. <laughs> when it says something bad, you kind of ignore it. Um, but he, told, <laughs> he kept telling us these things about our life and like, it was so... The good things were great, but then also it was confining, right? And mm-hmm. I think there's this cultural element of like parents, it's very patriarchal culture, right? So in South Asia. So people like parents telling their kids what to do, you know, like parent, the dad is like the big figure in all families, you know, and many families. Um, there's an idea of like destiny or your char- your character is your destiny and, and vice versa. So you're kind of this person that's set on a path. Um, and the more you illuminate that path, the better it's clear to you. Um, but I don't buy that idea at all because I think it's so limiting and it's so creates so much pressure and stress and like mental health anguish amongst um, South Asians that are railing against something that is not who they are because they were told that that's what they either should be or in fact in some cases that's what they are. And so I think like many things that idea should be challenged and that's not like the basis on it's, it's you know it's mythology. Even my grandpa like before he passed away said you know. His line was like that astrology's bunkum. He told me that the National Congress of <laughs> Astrologers predicted that Bill Clinton would lose his bid to be president and then he won two terms. Like he's like, we don't get it right. We don't know what we're talking about, you know. <laughs> um, but then so many people like culturally just have so much faith and so much stock in it that it becomes kind of a real thing. I mean, he told me, for example, that I wouldn't have kids. Um, or he said, no, no, no. He, he never says it that definitively. He says, you may or may not have kids. 
And I was shattered when I heard that because I was like, I really want to have kids. And I have two kids and I had two kids. So I was like, wait a minute, like that's totally wrong. You know, was the reason yeah. I had kids was like because I rushed to it. So like I wanted to contradict it the happened? fate, you know, like and then you get into that whole discussion. Like, did it happen because I didn't, you know, the, like you go down those like thought yeah, those rabbit holes. Yeah. And it's a terrible idea. So what's the, what is the conversation around mental health for South Asian Australians or just the South Asian community, I guess? Is there a strong support network around mental health or is it something you don't discuss very often? Um, I think there's an emerging conversation around mental health only because it has to happen because there's so much mental health anguish in our community. There is actually no data. Mm-hmm. which is one of the things that people are working on at the moment, which is fantastic. There's no real data on like, you know, what, how many South Asians are seeking mental health support services, you know, a corollary is there's very little data on South Asians with like family violence in certain scenarios. Um, we know that like South Asians are seeking mental health support and we know that there's a massive need, and especially in the younger generation is more vocal about mm-hmm. it, but there isn't really a language. It's not encouraged. There's a shame factor to it. Um, many people won't talk about it. And there is a stigma attached to still seeking that support, which the, a younger generation is combating. We are, you know, that's already kind of making efforts to try and illuminate that as a thing, I think. But I think if you talk to the average South Asian more broadly, like seeing a psychologist, mental health, I, although COVID, I believe, has changed that a bit and made people recognize like the burdens of isolation and loneliness and and, and cultural gaps to like, addressing some of the the bigger issues that mental health is a real thing Mm. but there's many people that believe mental health is not a real thing or if it is that it's not it's a thing that you only access when life is like terrible you know and you're in a hospital or something Mm, rather than a daily thing yeah a daily thing a preventative thing um a support mechanism like you know and i i firmly believe that like mental physical health is not really a difference because they affect each other so much Mm. and so i would say that you know in south asian cultures like many other cultures the idea of health is physical health and the idea of mental health is like way lower than that and they haven't caught up to each other right at all. and so what's interesting about that is that there's cultural barriers to addressing it but there's also cultural sensitivities that you want addressed when you seek mental health support uh, which is really interesting right and so what we did at sardi for example was last year when the lockdown started we put together a list of south asian psychologists up and down the east coast of Australia, which is now free on our website. And the reason for doing so was we wanted people to have access to kind of culturally appropriate support services in mental health, to them to talk to someone who understood about the cultural nuances, you know, family dynamics, things like, you know, pressure and karma and where that comes from, from a point of view of understanding that. And it's not to say every South Asian psychologist is amazing, but I think there's accessibility to the culture that can come from that, which is, which is useful. And there's actually like, I, I've heard people requesting day in and day out, do you know a South Asian psychologist, you know a South Asian male psychologist, you know a South Asian female psychologist, and not being able to find or the ones that are out there being like completely booked out because there's such a need. Mm-hmm. And I know one is, in fact, um, who I spoke to, who's been working in this space for a long time. She said our community is still like badly needing these services, but also not recognizing the importance of them. At the same time, um, there's still not enough you know, supply of, of South Asian psychologists. So that is a, that is an ongoing, current, and big issue in our community, and I think it's really important. Yeah. What? Yeah. What's your own understanding around men's mental health, particularly? And I know, obviously, 
gender is a spectrum and things, but I am really interested in men's mental health and the challenges that they're facing. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's an area I've had a lot of life experience in as well and also, you know, read and researched about. So I think in my own experiences of having mental health challenges, um, having depression, not even knowing what that register looked like, I think, in my life um, a couple of times, and then realizing that sort of, as you put it, mental health is an up and down thing that you kind of have to just keep be mindful of sort of like your physical health too. It's like, you know, eating and your diet, like it has effects over time. And so for me, like men's mental health is tied up to concepts of like masculinity and what that means, what it means to be a man. And I think that that is something that is tied to a concept of like being connected to something else Mm. than connected to yourself. And so that the way that takes out is like, and the way it played out for me the first time I experienced depression was in relation to work. I was, I, I had gone to, and it often happens in, I've been told in transition, right? So I was doing great in one job and then got a secondment to another job and tried that out in a different space. And, and I didn't know what I was doing and I struggled to find like my footing in that space. And I kind of have a sense of bravery that I could do anything because I'd been doing okay. And then I jumped into a space where I didn't know how to do something. And it really shook me. Like, I remember going to a music concert, um, like Splendor in the Grass or something, and bumping into an old mate and then talking about like some sort of spreadsheet project that I had to do like a good amount of the time. And then I realized that like, I was kind of, I got stuck on this idea of this work thing and it made me feel less valid in my own self. And that put me on a spiral of like just, you know, downward and negative thinking. and. And that that is tied to this idea of like, unless you're got a great card, you know, dating someone incredibly beautiful that everyone else thinks is is attractive for external reasons, unless you're like financially successful, or unless you're like a great athlete and have a great body, um, unless you're ex, um, you're not man enough. Mm. And um, I read Justin Baldoni's book recently. I talked about this. It's called Man Enough, actually. Um, and I really buy into that idea because I think it's so true that men set up a connection to something and that like reduces the kind of emotional processing you have to do. And so I think men's mental health, like the way men can approach mental health, like that idea of connecting to what you're feeling, mm. that's like a, you ask a man, like, <laughs> what are you feeling like? That's not, it's not just an idea, like not, you have to learn the vocabulary for how to say those, like say those things, right? You have to not just pick up the words and the language and educate, but you have to like, you have to kind of do the work to figure out like how you work out what you're feeling and articulate that. Yeah. And, and it's it's like a sublimated, it's like a, like the pressure push down thing. In the book, he like just mentioned some research that says that they did an, uh, an experiment where they measured in your brain the emotional reaction to stimulus. And men were actually faster to respond. So their emotions were, were lit up right away. The, the emotion was like kind of stopped or slowed down. And men, then it kind of faded away. Whereas women's brains like lit up maybe just a couple seconds later, but then it just kept going. <laughs> I can relate to and that. And it was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, like it kept going. And I was like, oh, that's so true. Because like, Initially, at the start, that's how we're, you know, maybe we're all raised in that society and like ideas of masculinity, especially in our culture, like South Asian culture is really constrained and really tight and really sort of rigid. 
Um, and so you, you know, what's often been called a man box, right? And you're trying to unpack all that. And you don't know how people know you have no role models in an old generation. because The old generation is less literate in this idea than a younger generation is. Yeah. So what's a man box? Uh, okay, it is the def- the definition of what it means to be a man confined to like particular, like a little box. So it's like saying, okay, you are a man if you are tall, you know, if you have good facial hair, if you are like can lift weights or run fast or be good at sports or drive an awesome car really fast. Um, <laughs> if you, you know, it's just like these, it's, it's a boxed version of what it means to be a man. Like a man, sh- and also the corollary is, right, a man shouldn't be these other things that are outside of the box. So mm-hmm. a man, I mean, I've heard that, you know, back in the day, it was like men shouldn't wear pink. Right? Uh, yeah. Men shouldn't express their femininity at all, that there's none within you even to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that men shouldn't be stay-at-home dads. That men shouldn't, there's all these things that men shouldn't do because that's not what a be man is. emotional or cry or acknowledge yeah. when they're feeling afraid or worried about something that it, they should at all times be just like strong and brave and in yes exactly way. and you should yeah. shut out your emotions and the, the emotions are outside of the man box right or you close the lid on the box of your emotions and there's just a box inside of you and that's it and maybe you want to open that box and let some stuff out but someone keeps shutting the lid and the really interesting thing is it's not People like men alone who do it. It's not women who put men in a man box for damn sure. That's not what happens. <laughs> it's actually other men that police the notion of what it is to be a man and reinforce this man box to men. So like the one number one person that'll call you out for something in a locker room or if you go on a date is another bloke. Wow. And they'll be like, oh, like that ain't right. Or like, you know, uh, you know, like she ain't that. Or, you know, you should just sleep with her or whatever it is, you know, um, or, you know, they'll make a joke about um, a woman at a woman's expense and and no one will stand up for it. And so the, it becomes like an accepted notion of just that's what we do as blokes. And so then if someone after that calls it out and goes, hey, I don't think we should talk about women like that, they'll laugh at you or they'll call you out or they'll make fun of you. And so it's men policing other men's behavior um, mm. that reinforces the idea of a man box. So the great thing is that there's a lot of people talking about this concept. There's a, like an organization that works with young men called Man Cave in Australia, which is doing a lot of great work in that space with schools and young men. Um, there's a lot of people doing this work especially with the younger generation and the younger generation is rising up to say, Hey, we want to not be defined in these ways that people have previously been defined because it's harmful. And so like, I think coming back to where we started, like men's mental health is intimately tied to this idea of the man box and addressing your mental health is like confronting like deep seated beliefs about what you have, what it is to be a man mm. um, and what you're performing and enacting to your own detriment. And what you can let go of. And then when you let, can like find it and how you go about a process to do that. And then the more you do that, the, the freer you are a little bit. And the freer you can perhaps make different choices and also kind of show up for not only women, but other men and show up in your communities and your families and things like that as well. Yeah. I think as well, once you, because sometimes people can start to just turn off when you say all this stuff about how it's important to Mm. be able to name your feelings and talk about it and let yourself out in that way. And sometimes you you can hear people saying, oh, just suck it up. You'll be right. Move on. Oh, that's airy fairy. But I think at the core of it, it's vulnerability, right? It's being able to actually show people who you are. And when you do that, 
they then meet you and meet you as you really are and your relationships are stronger and deeper. I think happiness is obviously something that comes and goes, but a feeling of deep connection and contentment can come from actually being real about who you are and being able to show those emotions rather than bottling them up. I spoke to a a friend of ours, Marty McGoran, whose sister Carly is Mm. a psychologist, and she was saying the danger of continuing to keep pushing all of that stuff into that man box is that you then eventually have to let the lid off somehow. And if you don't just open it, it explodes and it explodes Mm in negative consequences either for the people around you or for yourself and it can have really, really difficult, challenging, you know, long-term effects. Plus it's stopping you from actually building those connections with your partner or your kids or your friends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really such a powerful message and that's so important then. And it strikes me as well when you mentioned domestic violence rates in our country and in the mm-hmm. South um, Asian community as well, there has to be a link, right, between those two yep. things. Do you agree? Completely. Um, it's exactly what you just said. I mean, you put it really well. Like <laughs> the lid will explode off the man box in an emotional way, right? So mm. that's often, you know, that's anger, that's fury, that's violence, that's shame that leads to those things, you know. I was told by my psychologist, which is really insightful, that anger is actually in some circles seen as a secondary emotion. So there's something under it. Mm. And that it's really hard because it's such a powerful feeling, right? Mm. Um, but maybe you're angry at yourself or maybe there's something underneath it like hurt, you know, or um, sadness or, or shame or feeling unequal mm. or um, not being able to express yourself properly. And so like the sense of purpose that you can try and find allow, like the, about who you are, it lets you connect to others, lets you be you, but also prevents all that, you know, that blows out into societal level with men upon men. I mean, the, the structures that exist now in a society that is built by men, largely for men, which is being challenged on many levels, um, is that it doesn't help men either. It helps a few men, maybe, but it doesn't really help men either. <laughs> no. So if you're a man and you're listening and you're like, Oh yeah, okay, that that's great. I get it. What do I do about it? Like step 1 is is learn. Like learn about how you learn about what it means to be you and and, and the things and and where that comes from. Like that's it's not a wasted exercise. It's it's a simple thing to start like just reflecting, you know, buy yourself a notebook and just start writing stuff down or you know, read a couple of the books. Uh, just Miller Johnny's book is a great starting point. Mm. As a parent, like it came really to the fore for me. I have two boys um and so i'm like ah you know like all the the shit i was raised with like you know good and bad like but the the difficult things about the masculine i was presented with um that i've kind of tried to rail against it never served me in the way that i wanted it to and i you know i was raised on a steady diet of like comic books and graphic novels and star trek <laughs> and so i saw in the thing was i saw in those people that were different you know Patrick Stewart playing Captain Picard was like a different style of man than I saw before, you know, willing to be open and sensitive. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's super cool. Um, Paul Kent, like Superman, Clark Kent's dad, Superman's dad, different, you know, Mm. Um, encouraging his son to go do something with his super abilities that helps people, not just cash in on them, you know. Um, And you see these kind of stories and examples and they're powerful to you, especially when you're a teenager, Mm. about what that means. Yeah. So how are you parenting your boys then? 
now? Like, do you have a particular approach to it or is it sometimes a daily proposition? <laughs> yeah, I think it's just, it's daily. It's being in the moment with them. Um, I think it is about also helping them articulate how they're feeling. I think the schools now are really well literate. So they do a great job. Like our kids are getting education about what is indigenous culture and the languages there. They, they have like this, um, I don't know if at Kinder, they do like a blue zone, red zone, mm. green zone thing where they talk about their feelings. Like, Oh, I'm in the green zone. Oh, I'm in the red zone. And they're stomping around and they're <laughs> actually angry. And like, it's a, it's a beautiful like traffic light metaphor to explain at a kid appropriate level like what they're kind of feeling and how they articulate that and we always ask them like how are you feeling so they can learn to like verbalize and articulate that and you know i think you're just steering the ship about you know when they do something that is harmful but also that um i think the idea of like raising boys and again i read about this to try and be informed about it but i think the idea of raising boys is not replicating too much i mean he one of my sons came home the other day like a while back maybe a year ago um and was like oh that's uh that's pink that's a girl's color i'm not gonna wear that <laughs> and and so we had the conversation we we're like pink is not a girl there's no such thing as a girl color and you can wear whatever you want my other son loves dance like you turn on music and the kid is just dancing all the time Aww. everywhere um he actually started doing a performance at like you know just a couple months ago in front of the charity where i helped work on her story building closed off street on a bench like putting on a performance for a bunch of people just because he likes to put on a show um, <laughs> so we enrolled him in like the closest dance class that was near us was a ballet class and so we enrolled him in ballet and he loves it like he loves the dancing he, he, he sits there zoned in whether it's on video or in person you know depending on lockdown situations and he will just like zone in he'll every time there's music on he will start moving his body and start dancing like he's a kinesthetic person you know that's his skill set like yeah moving his body like he loves it already you know and whatever else he grows into but instead of like putting that down saying oh that's for girls or you know you shouldn't wear a tutu or you know don't be the only bloke in a ballet class like um you know we just encourage that's him and we just encourage him to be him um, and there's no kind of barrier or box around that version of what he wants to be. And there's no gender construct that ties to that, that you can be a ballet dancer and be masculine as anybody else, you know, mm. and there's no kind of response to that. So I mean, those are kind of practical examples, I guess. And the rest is just kind of communication style and, and talking and and modeling, you know, as best as best yeah. we can, despite parental thoughts and arguments you get into and things like that you know yeah there's um a really great writer called maggie dent who writes about boys mm. education who i love and just yeah. parenting in general and i just i love her advice and also carly and i talked about this too in that in a recent episode of taunts what your kids want is not a perfect person with with no mm. flaws because that's intimidating and that isn't real yeah. what they want is to get to know you as a person and so your relationship with them it's not a friendship in that you just want to make them happy all the time or but it's in that relationship between the two of you and that open yeah. communication and if you can just keep that open and when you make mistakes as we all will it's not about pretending it didn't happen. It's about when you have done it, acknowledging yes. it, right? And talking it through and being like, whoa, I got so angry then. I felt so angry. I should have gone outside and spent some time by myself. I'm really sorry that I got cross that you left the Lego out and I stepped on it or whatever it was. 
Yeah. And she was saying that like something like 60% of the time, we're not going to get our kids' needs met in exactly the right way in a perfect world. But what matters is after each time we have an interaction like that, we can kind of come back from it and apologize or talk it out, yeah. talk it through, make it make it right. And that's, I guess, how you build a marriage too, right? Or a relationship, a partnership. Yeah, any relationship, yeah. Yeah, it's just that like building yeah. one on top of the other. And that made me feel so much better. She said, takes the pressure off. They're not looking for you to be perfect. They're just looking to get to know you. And that, yeah. you know... And that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, a million things uh, that jump into my mind as you say that. Like, it's it's so true. And also, it is, um, I, I think for boys, there's, there's a couple things. Um, the first thing is that I read this article years and years ago in the New York Times called Family Stories. And it was based on some research, but the premise of it was that the stories that we tell in our family are really important. Um, and they help us, like, learn how to cope with, like storytelling is a story that we tell that we tell ourselves too, right? We internalize it after a while. So like the stories that we tell in our own family really define kind of how we work. And I think about, you know, the idea of like man box and patriarchal culture and some South Asian cultures, there's a versions of family stories that are told that, for example, don't include failure mm. because a man shouldn't be seen to be failing or be wrong or know how to apologize properly. Like you see in early Bollywood films too, like the, they build up for three hours until a man has to say sorry, you know, like <laughs> um, that's like a big, in fact, one of the most famous movies, Kabi Kush Kabi Gum called K3G with Amitabh Bachchan and Shah Rukh Khan. The entire movie builds up until the dad like apologizes to his son for being an absolute joke. <laughs> um, it's, it's three it's great song and dance numbers and big emotional crying and everything else. And, you know, the kid moves across the world and then he comes back and finally the dad like embraces him. And I was like, it's too much work to just, you know, it's too much like to have to put effort to put in for like your entire life and, and three hours of a film, yeah. whether you're in the movie or you're the person watching it to get to that point. Like, um, but the family stories bit is so true because it's like, if you are not told a story about how to fail and like, learn to cope and be resilient and bounce back to it that you don't have the language and the mechanism in the like the the pathway to understand how you do that within a family context which is like for us you know that circle but also someone who's like you very much close to you and like in your world or intimate world that might be able to do that so if you talk about you know some family stories where there's like a war hero or someone who survived something or someone who you know in our kind of world like who are migrants who move to a country and start over and build something together or people who didn't get it right often there's an idea that you have to just tell good stories about what happened and you shy away like the, the dodgy members of your family <laughs> you know but it's those stories that are the most important because you know if you talk about people who have not gone right then when when kids have a instance in their life when things haven't gone right they can draw on that story. Mm. Um, and the research was like those families that are more resilient. The, the kids are able to cope. The, the families that have the language of these family stories that they can tell is like other families that are more successful in the end, but also more resilient and more emotionally literate and more able to cope with different difficult circumstances that happen. And I love that. And I was like, oh, I wish we'd had more family stories about my, in my own family about, you know, things that tanked, like <laughs> things that went wrong like um there was there was there was a bit of it but not that much um it sort of came out in more angst than it did in just sitting down and talking about it so i think that part of it is really true but also the other part that you were talking about which is really cool is 
like that modeling, right? That you as a parent mm. are, are modeling this kind of behavior and you're kind of working out how you are better by going through this process and kind of doing it on the fly and then <laughs> working out if it's right. And for boys and I think men too, like there's a bit underlying that, which is like how you deal with strength and how you deal with power. And I'm finding that already with my oldest son, who's six. Um, like he'll, like he's, you know, finding some strength and stuff. He can do things. He might hit someone or me or just in a lash out, you know, at a moment. And like, and as a man, as a boy, like you don't know how to cope with your own strength. And it's a big thing that dads can help with, right? Like a dad who has physical, is physically stronger than a mom in most cases. just because of our genetics, right? Mm. Like can, can help show how to be, how to be like a strong person who is not exploited with that strength, how to use like your physicality in a way that is appropriate. Mm. Um, and so I find that we're having, we're doing a bit of that now, which is really interesting. Like, and that most people like, and that's another thing about men, like most men, they're not aware of their own power and privilege and what to do with it. Um, and they often feel disempowered when they're empowered, but they're also emotionally not empowered. <laughs> and so it's this weird mix and this mess. And like, but for me, like maybe part of the answer to the origin question really was like, I just thought at one point that like I was given gifts, that maybe I was good at a couple of things. And I had the like resources and support of a family that was, you know, middle class or, or above that. And like, and I got a, was able to get a good education. And so what am I doing with all that? Like, mm. shouldn't I be doing something with that? And that makes the world a different place, like a better place and helping others. And also that I think for me, like the highest calling, what I was taught in Hinduism is like the idea of Dharma, which is like, what is your purpose? But that purpose should be enabled by service. Mm. And there's some level of service you should give to people. Um, and that can fulfill your purpose. And that part of that is like coming back to your own values. So for me that, you know, funnily enough, after having a couple up, up and downs with my own mental health and like going through a career as a lawyer and then coming out of it, it was like I had to reconnect my own values. Yeah. Um, and I kind of rediscovered that like the things that are really important to me, two most core things are community, which is something I was raised in, the circular idea that people supporting each other as an antidote to lots of things like the epidemic of loneliness that is going on in society right now, mm. the lack of connectedness, the response to like at a neighborhood level, like, you know, pandemic and supporting people. Like the community is not just an antidote, but it's a, it's a thing that builds us up and that a community of men can talk about masculinity and mental health and can help advance those things if we're doing supporting each other together in a, in a positive, in a different way. Mm. And, and then the other one is creativity which is why I like working with Hunter Building, which is a children's creative writing center in Footscray in the west of Melbourne. And then also with Sardi and helping writers and South mm. Asians like kind of scratch and unpack their creativity. So I think it comes back to me kind of really trying to put in the work and, and working out what my kind of core values are and then doubling down on them. There's like the whole, you know, approach on like strengths-based thinking. And I was like, these are the things that I value, but these are also my strengths. And the more I double down on like what I believe in and what's important to me and like what the things that I'm good at, the happier I am and the more fulfilled and the more success kind of starts to roll around. Yeah, it's in its own way. So true. Do you find that too? Completely. When I when we started yeah. Planet Broadcasting, just before we did it, I because I was a teacher beforehand, I kind mm. of had this idea of that of trying to burrow into what it was that I loved the most about teaching and I figured mm. out it was the helping people to be creative thing, however yeah. that is. 
And that's the thing I still love doing now and I do with my husband and with my kids and because I believe so strongly in creativity. And so when we launched the company, that was at the core of it, that I want to help people to build their creativity and do that by building a community as well. And then obviously trying to make the world a little bit better at the same time. I think, you know, creativity feeds into so much of this stuff. I mean, with mental health too, I I really think human beings are designed to create, right? Just constantly Mm. I think we're happiest when we are. Um, And once I nailed that idea that I loved helping people to be creative, everything started to fall into place. And so then you can pick up, it, rather than it just being in, like one goal in your life, like I want to be a lawyer, Yeah. knowing your own purpose and what you're good at and what you believe in, you can take that with you to wherever you work next. Yeah. But you've got that kind of as a little guiding lamppost or principle that, that really helps. And if it's grounded in your own values, yeah, there's just so much that leads from that and then you meet like-minded people like I met you and you know other people through Vinnie's and I even met James because of what we were doing volunteering and so Mm. and is that how you met your partner as well yeah I mean we just we sort of met and we we hit it off but we realized there was a lot of commonality in terms of what we believed and things we wanted to do and yeah I always felt there was a need to enact social justice or give back or do something with our lives that was more than just about money but it was about kind of impact and and change and um solving problems that existed kind of out in the world um can i ask you a question though about that about what we were just talking about so like obviously our own values around creativity Mm -hmm. so like it's a pandemic right and it's been going on and it continues to go on um and i find that it's hard as a creative like part of me that is creative draws on the world right mm-hmm. like you kind of draw like you kind of connected to or have em- empathy and feelings for what's happening uh, around you right you're kind of tuned in mm-hmm. and you observe and you pay attention to and you feel what others feelings and you're talking about things from that emotional place and like and then it, this type the world we're in is is tough and mm-hmm. like it's draining so like how do you as a person who does this all the time like recharge your creative battery like, how do you, what do you do, like, small or big to kind of refresh that sense of, like, how how do I combat this, come back to this world and, like, create in a space where it's kind of dark sometimes? Yeah. Draining. Oh, yeah. what a great question. I totally agree with you. It's such a difficult space to be doing any kind of work mm. in, let alone creative work. Funnily enough, podcasting, <laughs> talking to other people <laughs> who are like-minded like yeah, you, true. like this conversation is giving me so much inspiration. So that's one of the things like, that I love about podcasting. I can still turn a mic on and talk to someone who's got really interesting ideas and experiences. Mm. Obviously, reading and watching things online helps a little. Music is something that helps me too. But yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I find it really hard. I mean, I was writing before we went back into lockdown, I was writing a weekly newsletter and I just haven't yeah. had the room just with kids as well, because I think creativity also needs a bubble around it, right? Like sometimes to write, Protect I need a good it, yeah. couple of hours beforehand to noodle around and go for a walk and sit in a cafe or something before I get to the core yeah. of it. 
So it does. It just looks different. I think we have to be kind to ourselves. It has to look different, doesn't it? But podcasts for me, definitely listening to them as well has really helped while I'm walking. So if I can be by running running water, for some reason, that also helps unlock something. Yeah. Yeah. But I really feel for you. I know it's super difficult to, to, to keep afloat actually the only other thing that has been helping me are two things really it's so personal isn't it one is poetry Mm. for me because I haven't had room in my head or heart for a lot I mean the news yesterday was so heavy and so Mm. desperately sad on so many levels and the events in Afghanistan are just heartbreak like just I feel like everywhere you turn there's something heartbreaking here locally or abroad but Poetry and like short pieces of prose really mm. have helped with me with that. Still trying to keep my creative sort of juices bubbling away and writing yeah. short fragments of things have helped. I don't know. It's tough. How, what's helped? Has anything, have you found anything helpful? <sighs> yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with the question because I think about mid year, I was, especially this year, I was feeling a bit drained. I was feeling a bit like overwhelmed and going, all right, now like need a recharge, but not really sure how to do that. I think it's also being a kind of your own boss and your own entrepreneur. And like, mm-hmm. there's all that on top of it. Um, for me, one of the things that really helped was uh, getting the book, The Artist's Way. Do you know this book? I've heard of that book. I haven't read it, yeah. The Artist's Way. Uh, there might be people listening who have experienced it or encountered it. So the artist's way is like this seminal classic. I, apparently, um, I actually heard on a, a, a podcast from a, um, a TV show writer who was talking about like his his practice, and he says that he uses one of the techniques in the book. So the artist's way is like a, a guide to spiritual recovery. It's called mm-hmm. like spiritual creative recovery. So um, it, it's talking about it like in a spiritual sense only in that. You know, creativity comes from this place outside of ourselves, like, and they, she calls that spirituality. But um, it is a it's a guidebook and like a twelve, literally a twelve step program, like twelve weeks, mm. um, of creative recovery. So she calls it like the kind of the equivalent of Alcoholics Anonymous for creative types. <laughs> and I was like, this is great when you're down the. And she's like, and then one of the things she uses is like, you know, alcoholics have to prevent themselves from having that first drink. Um, that's the thing that like working, like the working, I can't have the first drinks, then it's a gateway. And, and mm. she said, oh, creatives have to stop themselves from having the first think. And the first <laughs> think is like, what I'm making is crap. Like what I'm making <laughs> is terrible, you know? And I was like, it's so true. It's so good. And, that's so, and so good, it's, yeah. <laughs> and it, so it's this book and it's just got this like, it's literally week on week and exercises like you have to be really disciplined. But there's two core components to it. So the first one's called the morning pages and the second one's called the artist state and the morning pages. Anybody can do that. Having a book, you just get a notebook or even just loose leaf paper. And you, as soon as you can, after you wake up or even at any point to the day I found is useful. Um, you just get your pen and you start writing and you don't stop until you fill the three pages. Many a time I've written, I don't know what to say, or I'm just writing right now <laughs> or, you know, I'm breathing, like stuff like that. And so just to, it doesn't matter what you put in it. It doesn't matter, like if it's legible, never let anyone read it. Some people throw them away after they're done. And just doing that consistently, like if you could do it every day, that'd be ideal. 
so I've done that on and off and I found it useful. Like it, maybe I'll do it for a day or a couple of days here and there as a kind of a journaling practice. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I started like, I was like, I'm just, because I'd heard of the artist's way, but never the book. And then I got the book and then I started and it said, you need to do this every day. And I was like, all right. So I bought a notebook and I started just getting up and like whatever 15 minutes I had, I, I got a 15 minutes earlier and I was like, I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sometimes I do it a little bit later in the day, but mostly in the mornings. And I was like in a funk, like I was grumpy about stuff mm. and, you know, just, and then I did this and I like, a mate rang and I, they're like, you sound really happy. Like, what's going on? I was like, I j- I've just been doing morning pages. I've just been like processing all the shit I think about myself and everything else in the <laughs> world. And the funny thing is I'll get like two, two and a half pages in and I'll run out. Like I'll run out of rubbish to say. And then I'll like, and then I'll, there would just be this empty space where I'm like, oh, I might as well feel this is something good. So I'll be like, hey, today I'm going to talk to Claire and be on a podcast. Like, you know, um, and just, it's just amazing. Like you kind of run out of, of that train of thought. Like it just ends. Sometimes it takes, you know, multiple days. But like for me now, it kind of, a couple of times this has happened. And I was like, ah, and I just, I walked away from it. I don't even remember what I wrote really, but I just remember feeling like clearer and lighter and happier and like just processed and, and it was just, it was incredible. And, and so I, like, you know, I've been doing it. I'm on week two of the recovery. <laughs> and so, you know, I've been doing morning pages each morning. Um, and God, it's just amazing. It's incredible. Like it, it also, it's, it frees you to then be creative. Like I write it before I write anything. Yeah. Or before I do anything. And I just, I don't feel that like voice that sits on my shoulder that is both either like the creative devil, you know, uh, that says like, your yeah. stuff is rubbish, you yes, know, yes. or the like male South Asian, like you should be doing something, you know, bigger or go be a lawyer or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, um, and you're not man enough because who, what man does this, you know, go, you know. Build a house or something. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, like buy crypto, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Um, and, um, and the other practice is the artist date, which I've only done once so far because I just started with it. Um, and the artist date is like, like you're saying, like time for yourself and your inner artist. Some people just go on a walk, like go to a museum. Some, there has to be some visual component. Like I was just saying, walking next to a stream or going in nature. You know, it can be it. But you go, you take yourself on a date and you just explore your artist. So the other day I went to like, there's a um, kind of food truck park near here. And I just went and near some factories. And I just went to a wander's clothes, but I went to wander around. And I found all this cool, like all these cool graffiti sites and just started taking photos, went to a, an American bakery and got a really cool, like, croissant and, you know, just kind of took some time for myself and explored and then came back and just took some notes about, like, what I did and how I felt. And and it was really weird because it was a strange feeling, like, taking myself out. Yeah. Um, and then reflecting on it. But one of the things I've read in other places that I use as a kind of a life thing, um, a life principle, there's two, actually, that are really useful probably to people listening and especially in relation to careers. So I mentor a lot of people in their careers. One is called direction over speed that it it doesn't matter what direction like you're on. If you're in the wrong, it doesn't matter how fast you're going. If you're in the wrong direction, uh, you can be running a million miles a second and you still feel like you're going nowhere. And so it's so much more important to, figure out like what direction, like who you are, what direction is right for you, what you want to be doing. Um, even if it's through trial and error, but have a process around mm-hmm. that um, to kind of reflect and work that out. Because if the minute you pick the right direction, it doesn't matter how slow you're going to go. 
everything in your life starts to line up. All the people you knew start to fall in line. All the things start to connect. And I found that with starting my startup is like all these people from other parts of my life have just like popped up and it's they've aligned with what I'm doing. Um, and there's been all kinds of opportunities. And it just feels like that serendipity, very much a thing, a creative thing, right? Yeah. That was a result of like a creative practice in this artist thing, but also it's direction over speed. It's picking the right direction. Yeah, I love yeah. that. There's a book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Oh, I love that book. Oh, yeah. I love it too because I have such a horrible inner critic and I found creativity so hard. I still do. Mm. And it really, I get really blocked and that judgment on my shoulder, that inner voice is so mean and really very yeah. much, you just need to stop. Everything you're doing is terrible. Why are you even trying this? Everyone must think you are ridiculous. You know, just constantly and I have to put her to the side to be able to keep going and one of the things I love about big magic is that she says you just have to do it you know you just have to Mm. show up on the artist date or and I guess that's what morning pages is I'm going to look up that book now yeah yeah. that's the same thing and I found with this podcast um this new podcast I'm doing that's the same thing that I I don't necessarily always want to turn up to do it but once I do it and because I've set parameters around it, it's so wonderful and gives me so much. Yeah. And every even when I go to release an episode, I get really anxious and worried and so mm. in my head about it all. But because I've set it up so that, no, this is a commitment I made to myself to do it every week, having that like weekly practice puts yeah. in a structure where you just have to release it, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not exactly how you imagined It's going out there, you know, (laughs) and that I think is really great because nothing is ever, you know, something is better than nothing is another thing I always think to myself when I Mm. get really stuck. If Even if all you sit down and write is two sentences, that's more than you did if you did nothing. Yeah. You know, and it's it gives you so much, doesn't it? And it's so strange. It's a little bit like exercise for me, creativity. It's that thing that I know is so important for me and I'm miserable if I don't do it, but then I have to convince myself to do it. And until you make it habitual, like cleaning yeah. your teeth, you know, and and when I when you're in the habit of it, it becomes so easy and natural. But I guess it's like going to the gym, mm. you fall out of the habit of it. You know, it's that rolling stone that stops again and then takes a lot more yeah, you know, yeah. energy to get it going. I'm so glad that you're on your second week and getting back into the groove yeah. of it. That's so you know, great. It's, it's really nice. It's sort of, it's hard to also section off the time to do it. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, having a lockdown, I was like, I needed something to kind of look forward to and like a little structure around something that was kind of positive and reinforcing. And the artist way has definitely been that. The other thing that I have learned from it already and also was in my own kind of principles and practice of life was this idea of that, you like humans are bad at learning about stuff if they guess forward like we're really kind of bad especially about ourselves and so and there's that inner critic preventing us that oh that might turn or we might you know sway from a habit of like exercise but what we're good at what's made every kind of human leap ever happen is like uh our logic right our ability to go back and look at patterns and analyze things and see stuff that comes up um, and so equally, there's a creative side of like being in tune with stuff and just trusting your instincts. There's also an analytical side of our brains that we can use effectively if we kind of shut off that critic. And so one of the practices I have is like, 
I usually try and write down things. Like if I meet with someone, I'll write it down or I have an idea, I'll write it down. I won't, I'll have a space or maybe one notebook that is not for like any kind of commentary on that thing. Uh, and then I'll look back after a set, like two weeks or something. I used to take myself out for lunch when I was working and I'd have a job where I had to meet a lot of people. So I'd write down like some notes about what I met with that, what we talked about or something. And then I'd look back and I'd find, I try to look for patterns. I just look for <sighs> like, I look for like I, I did this after I be, like was kind of disillusioned with being a lawyer, and I was like, I was like, what else do I want to do? And I was like, I'm not really sure. What's my process for working out what is next? And I was like, I have no clue. And I heard this thing was like, your process should be playing the strengths of what like human brains can do, which is like looking back and figuring out patterns. But in that moment, you're not gonna you're gonna have one meeting with somebody. Go, oh yes, that person said I should do this with my life. I'm gonna do that. Now, you don't have enough input, like. You know, of data. So I kind of write stuff down and then I make a point to at various points I go back and look. So, and I kind of do that unfiltered, right? So I'll write down, you know, I had four or five coffees with people trying to work out what they do and whether that's kind of a cool job or whatever. And then I came and then I look back and it goes, oh, which ones of those was I kind of excited about? What conversations did I have? Like all meta kind of analysis myself. Mm. Um, and I find that that, suggestion is too that like often we don't see what we're looking at in any kind of bigger picture or how it like informs us or a pattern or any kind of creativity unless we start doing a bunch of stuff um without that voice which many people name i don't know if you name yeah, my, yeah voice, mine's but... named i've got mine's called maud <laughs> <laughs> maud i like yeah. that <laughs> nice mine has this like old monster from indian mythology called shwatantrata <laughs> which is a really hard name to pronounce. So every time I say it, I have to like, uh, well, I call her Swashi. And she's like um, the bad voice in my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's this whole thing on, on like noting stuff down in a place where you can just jot it and then going back and looking at it so that it's removed from the feelings that you have in the moment. So then your inner critic is less fired up because as you're writing one thing, you judge yourself a lot. But if you look back and you go, Oh yeah, I wrote that thing three months ago. You're not attached to that thing anymore. Yeah. Um, you go look back on it. And so, and for me, that's like a, a creativity thing too, is looking back on, on things that I've done given space. So like I try and plant seeds for the time when I'm going to look back at something. Yeah. Um, it's such a great idea. Cause often what I, I find that I journal and I'll go back to a journal or a piece of writing I did two years ago and I'll look at it with these sort of eyes of someone. And then I can't even remember being in the headspace where I wrote it and thinking, yes not bad that's pretty good yeah you know where at yeah, the time yeah. I was I thought it was awful and I can't understand why anyone would want to read it but it is with that distance yeah. and removal you look back on it and sometimes I can write things and think or make something and almost be amazed that it is in the world not because it's any yeah. particular genius but just because it wasn't there and then I made it happen and now it's yeah, there, yeah. you know, and it's it's actually yeah, yeah. such a magical process and so wonderful that it's so worth all of the angst to get it out, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they said that the whole point of life is like kind of shortening, try, working to shorten the angst 
timeline that you're on. Yes. You know, like how long you entertain the voice. If you can shorten it even by a few minutes, then you start moving to creating stuff. And then you feel like, wow, look what I put out in the world. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that the one thing is I think is that if we can just set up, like you said, processes and structures around habits, like Jerry Seinfeld, Mm. I listened to an episode with him. He's all about that processes and structures around your creativity. And I guess more broadly, your mental health, your physical health, they become Mm. kind of neurological pathways and they become habits. So then, yeah, you're spending less time on the setup and more just doing it because you're just doing it. And it's, it's okay. It's a lot of work and that's okay. You're not going to be good at it initially. And I think there's a myth that I think I still struggle with sometimes that if you're not good at this now, there's no point. You're clearly, you know, not gifted at it where really to be good at a thing takes, you know, that, you know, 10,000 hours or whatever, but you're never going to get there unless you do this little chip away, even if it's 15 minutes a day, you know, and whatever it is, yeah, you know, that is really rewarding. I read a great piece by a startup founder that was like, we as a society are not taught how to create something not good. Like we're we're just, we're not like we have no precedent for creating something like mediocre or like average, you know, like we just, and he said that a lot of startups, like they're, they're they're not great at the start. They're terrible or they're bad ideas and you have to fail until you get, get it right. You know, and that whole artist journey. I think for me, like part of my life was also being afraid of that. Like so much Um, culturally, like, personally everything was like being afraid of of just failing and choosing easier pathways or more set pathways should i say not easy but like mm. more set and i realized that that is right but like we're just not as a society like and and that's the kind of thing that you talk to your kids about right like where you, the example you said about you know learning how to fail and grow the family stories thing i think a lot of that around creativity around mental health too all that a lot of that ties into this structure around like how do we make it a little bit more okay to fail and be supporting ourselves. I'm a big believer in like the work of Dr. Kristen Nuff on self-compassion. I don't know if you've come across that, mm-hmm. but um, that this voice that you have that can kind of soothe you as and be compassionate to yourself. It is not a vocabulary culturally we have at all. Like I talked to a couple of people about it who are aware of it, like this idea, and they have no language for it whatsoever. And so I think, you know, if anyone's listening, they looked that up. There's a TED Talk she did, which was phenomenal. It's uh, Kristen Neff is her name. Kristen Neff. Um, I think we should put yeah. some of the resources you've talked about today in the show notes. Yeah, happy to send you some links. Yeah, um, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that piece is really cool, I think, as a, a solid component of, like, building a toolkit for yourself. Self-compassion is a great one. There's an exercise. She has a workbook that you can get um, with a bunch of exercises on self-compassion, which is a form of journaling, mm. which is great, you know, for writers and, and creative types. Yeah. Um, oh, thank, yeah, yeah. thank you so much, Deep. This has just been so valuable and interesting. And thank you also just for the yeah. work that you do. I know that your work means so much to so many people in so many different places in the South Asian community. Yeah. But beyond that and the work you've done with kids it's just really inspiring so really thanks i mean if there's people listening who are south asian and they want to write you know or think they want to write and are not sure like they can always find us um you know we we take writers um from anywhere really um of all kinds and whether you're not sure if you want to or not like let's have a conversation about it great and and we pay our writers too so like they can find us on sorry collective uh, which is s double a r i 
uh, collective.com.au. And we, the reason we're called SARI is it stands for South Asian Australians representing ideas. So we're just a place, if you have an idea, you can come and we'll help you represent that idea. That's fantastic. Sounds great. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes too. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast with me, Claire Tonti, and this week with Sandeep Barma. For more from Sandeep, you can head to saricollective.com.au. That's S-A-A-R-I collective.com.au. For more from me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can head to at clairetonti.com where all my writing and podcasts and everything is all over there. I also have another podcast called Suggestible that comes out every Thursday with my husband, man, James, uh, with recommendations for stuff to watch, read and listen to. So if you, like me, sit down at a nighttime and don't know what bloody streaming service to go on and what thing to watch next, listen to Suggestible. We make fun of each other. It's a really great time. But also you come away with some cool stuff to share with your fam or partner or just with yourself. So fun times. Okay, so that comes out on a Thursday. Tons is out every Tuesday. I'm on over on Instagram at Claire Tonti. And thank you so much to Collings, as always, for editing this week's episode. I think that's it. Oh, yeah. If you wouldn't mind rating, reviewing and subscribing to the show in iTunes or wherever you listen to your pods, that would be incredible. And share it with a mate. That's the best way to get this show out there and to you and to other people every week. So if you wouldn't mind sharing it with a mate if you enjoyed it. If you didn't, no worries. That's fine. (laughs) I love this episode though and I hope you have a wonderful week and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.